Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. I think I've really evolved to a place now where my understanding of like what what self-help actually is or like what what a good life actually is is it's not like becoming whoever you want to be. Hello and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today I am really excited to introduce you to this podcast improv jam. This is an idea that Mark Manson and I had at a party a couple weeks ago. We're like, you know what? We should just sit down and have a chat and whatever comes up, comes up. We have so many mutual interests, so would assume that a lot of interesting things would come up. And a lot of interesting things did. In this episode, I talked to best-selling author and badass self-help guru Mark Manson about things such as what makes social media so polarizing? Why are self-help quotes so cheesy? Are all pickup artists narcissists? And does free will exist? We also cover topics such as relationships, politics, self-esteem, and neurodiversity. This was a really broad and rich chat with motherfucker Mark Manson, (laughs) who uses the word fuck in almost all of his books. So anyway, I really hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. We had a blast. So let's get right into it. Hey. Yo. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I got this new shirt just for this occasion. Oh, shit. I'm buttoned buttoned the top one. Hope that people can handle this. uh, Oh, my God. We're we're getting serious. (laughs) We sure are. We sure are. (laughs) Let me give some context to people. This is uh, an unplanned, uh, unscripted. Well, I mean, it, it was planned, but it's unscripted chat about whatever comes up. Even though I made a little bit of a list of some topics, I put together some some items too. Oh, uh, uh, we should add that the only rule is that we're not allowed to talk about either of our books. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for adding that clarification. So, Mark, actually, I was wondering, what were you like as a child? When I was particularly young, I was pretty happy-go-lucky, and then my family life started to go south. I think around age nine or ten. 
And then I became quite rebellious and a little bit of a shithead um, starting around then. The happy child, and then I was a very angry and obnoxious teenager and pre-adolescent. Did you use, did you use the word fuck a lot? Oh, yeah, I do. I, I was that kid. I was always in detention. I was smoking cigarettes behind school. You know, I was wearing, I used to wear Marilyn Manson t-shirts, the Bible study. Uh, (laughs) So I was, uh, you know, every teacher and authority figure's nightmare. But you know, it's what I, you know, you get by however you, however you can. Oh, I get it. I get it. I mean, I I was, I was one of the world's uh, most uh, notorious computer hackers when I was 13. Nice. So I, I took it in a white collar way, prime way. <laughs> my angst i had a lot of angst too you know for yeah. I, I was labeled special ed you know when i was a kid so i was oh, like wow. you know what i'm going to regain power and control in some way and i discovered computers when i discovered my apple 2gs i was like i'm gonna hack this shit out of 2gs <laughs> can, yeah. can you can you talk about what 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 was your like greatest heist you, you mean, can I talk about it without going to jail? Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the statute of limitations is out. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> don't, I don't think we want to take any chances. But, but I, um, I had, I was the wizard, and I had a, a whole a bulletin board system, BBS, and I don't hmm. expect anyone to know what that means because uh, I remember. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. 90s internet. Yeah. And I shared uh, the, one of my worst crimes is I shared Wolfenstein 3D on with the, the non-shareware version for free. Uh, <laughs> again, I don't expect anyone to know what I'm talking about. Oh right now. yeah, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. breaking the law, early yeah. piracy. Those were the days. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, used to used to get all sorts of stuff for free. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those were the days. Those were the days. In some ways, and then in some yeah. ways, I'm glad that I'm not in those days anymore. For but, sure. But these days aren't much better. <laughs> what, <laughs> what interesting days? I mean, the days of the last couple of years are mm-hmm. fascinating uh cultural changes cultural shifts i feel like conversations can't be had that were had 10 years ago and mm. some people think that's rightly so yeah i yep. i get all different sides of perspectives i get it part of my problem mark is that like i feel like i have radical perspective taking ability so like it's hard for me mm. to make a damn decision and take a damn side i don't know if you relate to this at all but i feel like it's hard for me people are like Pick a radical side. And I'm like, wait, but I totally get what they're saying on the other side. Like, I get it. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying maybe I necessarily agree with it, but like, yeah, I get it. You know, like, yeah. I, I totally relate. So, you know, I have just for your listeners who aren't familiar with me or my work, like I, I, I'm primarily, I'm in the self-help space. So I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an academic. I'm, I'm in the self-help space. I'm best known for writing the subtle art and not giving a fuck, but I've also been an, uh, a blogger. Uh, online for my god like 14 years now and uh and i've built up you know a pretty large audience online and i have a newsletter that i send out regularly and it was interesting because when 2020 hit you know uh, traditionally pre-2020 i would always avoid political subjects just because in my mind it's like if i was writing an article about i don't know self-esteem or self-acceptance or you know whatever anxiety to bring any sort of political reference into it, in my mind, it like, it narrowed my audience immediately. Like it would immediately shut out a large percentage of people who could potentially read and benefit from whatever I was talking about. So I just, I avoided at all costs for many, many years. And in 2020, I felt 
compelled, I guess you could say ethically compelled to stop doing that because initially with the pandemic, I felt like it was a, an important enough subject to talk about some things very plainly. And then with the, the protests that summer and then the election that followed it, I, you know, I, throughout 2020, I continually found myself in situations where I'm like, well, if I don't talk about this, you know, I have a large audience, I have a lot of influence. And if I don't talk about this, then I feel, Shitty. you know, it, yeah, it just felt like the morally correct decision. Right. But as a result, it kind of threw me into the middle of these, a lot of political conversations that I didn't really want to be in the middle of. And I started to experience a lot of what you're talking about, which is, you know, well, you, you shared this link to this paper. That means you're like a right wing or left wing fascist slash communist slash, you know, something is, and you're the reason the world is being ruined and all this stuff. I started receiving a lot of hate mail from all over the political spectrum. It, it seemed like I couldn't, there was nothing I could say that didn't piss off people somewhere on the political spectrum. And so I wrote a number of emails that tried to like address this. There are a couple of newsletters. They're still on my site that tried to address this. And, you know, I had, I had an entire newsletter where I kind of like went point by point. I'm like, look, you know, just because I share a piece of information doesn't necessarily mean that like that's my conviction or my belief. I'm just sharing information. Right. And even if I had, if I share a belief, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm like not open to evidence, counter evidence or discussion or debate. You know, there's just all these assumptions, these like kind of instinctual assumptions that seem to happen online these days that it's making, I feel like it's kind of just poisoning discourse in general. And I would say this is not only limited to uh, the political topics. I, I think you see it like if you get into like health and nutrition Twitter, you're, you're like, you'll see like people arguing about carbs with like the same anger and fervor that, you know, people argue about some of these other issues. You know, you see it in all over the place. And I don't know what it is about our, you know, something about the technology, the cultural moment, the interconnectedness of society is, is like, it's causing people to shorten their attention spans and double down on like their first inclinations. And it's just not, I think there's, there's a lot of healthy discourse that is prevented because of it. Yeah, that's a great point. I view it from a psychological entropy perspective, which gets nerdy real quick, but <laughs> like, go real on quick. real, real, real quick. <laughs> I view it from a, a, a systems entropy, dynamic systems, <laughs> complex perspective, but, <laughs> and I do, I do, because I think that it makes sense that when you're in a situation where people, uh, their sense of coherence, which is a form of meaning, you know, that people often, mm -hmm. when they think of meaning, they often think of the need for purpose. But there's a different kind of meaning, which is just how much does your immediate environment make sense? How much can you predict? You know, our brain is a prediction machine. And when yep. you have too much entropy, you feel like your brain can't predict anything anymore. And when you get to that point, you're, you tend to cling as much as you can to certain beliefs that are unchanging. So I do think that we're living at a time where people are, are becoming so rigid in their beliefs because they're really lacking a sense of coherence and meaning yep. in that sense. Does that make sense? For sure. I've definitely, I, I agree with that to a certain extent. Like I, do you think, what do you think that's primarily due? Do you think it's the amount of information? Do you think it's the amount of stimulation? Lack of trust. 
And in, so there's a real lack of trust. And people who are the leaders are fanning that flame, mm-hmm. you know, um, on both sides. Um, yeah. Again, every time you use the expression "both sides," you get pummeled by by both sides. Oh, of course. <laughs> or or you get pummeled by the people who are like, "Oh, that's both sidesism." You, like yeah, you yeah, can't yeah, hide yeah. behind your both sidesism. It's like, well, uh, wait, like, where am I supposed to go then? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. My, and my point about both sides is because, well, I'm a humanistic psychologist, so I see things in terms of humans, not sides. Yeah. And that's people don't want to think that way, yeah. you know. But there is potential for these capacities in all of us. Regardless of, you, you know, you're not safe. Just you say, I'm a leftist doesn't make you safe all of a sudden from being human. Like, yeah. it's crazy. Like, people act as though, like, oh, if you're on the right side, then you can do anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and how many atrocities over the course of human history have stemmed from that one single philosophy, which is I'm on the right side, therefore I can do anything? Oh, all of them. Yeah, like all of them. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, you know, nobody who pulls the trigger <laughs> thinks they're unjustified in pulling right. the trigger. You know, I, I think there's another element of this that I've thought about a lot, which is there's kind of an asymmetrical relationship in online discourse, which is what I mean by that is that, you know, if you and I are at a dinner party, right? And let's say there's 20 people in the room and one person is, is just a belligerent asshole. The other 19 people in the room can all kind of look at each other and kind of, you know, give that knowing nod and just ignore that one obnoxious person and yeah yeah and and things don't spiral out of control like everybody just kind of tacitly agrees to ignore that person online you have that one person out of 20 and it just derails everything like there's something about online discourse that it's that trollish behavior has an asymmetric influence on the overall conversation and discourse and there's actually i've actually seen research on this where they found that it only takes, I think the threshold is around like four or five percent of people in a forum. I think they, they did it with Reddit threads. It only takes like four or five percent of the people in a thread to instigate, like start be combative basically. And everything goes to shit. Like the other 95 percent of people get sucked down into it. And, and so I think there's something inherent about the medium. You know, and it doesn't mean that, you know, Reddit or Facebook or Twitter like built these, you know, they're like intentionally making everybody angry because they get, they get more clicks. It's just like, there's just something about the psychological experience of seeing words on a screen, not seeing a person's face, not knowing who's behind that screen and all the kind of heuristics and biases that we all have when we see something that we don't like on a screen that causes us to, to spiral in this way oh, when we try to communicate with each other. That's a great point. I mean, Twitter is a great example of how easy it is to be anonymous. And But the greater point there is when you're lacking verbal cues and facial cues, you're lacking all the cues, mm-hmm. you have no idea someone's intense uh, intonation. There's so much information conveyed uh, when you just have a conversation with someone that is not conveyed on Twitter. And what you see is an awful lot of, so what you're saying is dot, dot, dot. People are filling in blanks. With For such sure. a lack of information. That's horrible. The other day, I uh, wrote a tweet about, you know, just questioning uh, about the far left. Uh, why don't you see much controversial, uh, that label used as much, mm-hmm. you know, in the mainstream media? Uh, linguistically, I was just curious. I'm like, I just perplexed me. You don't really use, you know, you don't see that linguistic label used on the far left as much as described as everything's automatically controversial on the far right. 
you know, fair enough. Yeah. But you just don't see that label. It was a really nerdy. It was more of a nerdy point. I wasn't trying to like start a war, <laughs> but <laughs> but people will say <laughs> people came in and said, "So what you're saying is genocide is just as you know, uh, uh, or, or fighting racism is just as bad as genocide." Is that's yeah. that's what you're saying? What <laughs> did I <laughs> what, did I say that? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, oh. I saw that thread. And I actually, I thought, I think that's a really interesting question. It actually right? got me, it got me thinking about that, uh, quite a bit. But I also knew better than to go into your comments. <laughs> Cause oh, I knew, I, I, I knew what was going to happen. It a monster, it spiraled out of control, you know? So, what, so why do you think the language is different for, say, like radical left beliefs versus radical right beliefs? I, you know, part of why I outsource this to Twitter, I was, I mean, I can be really naive. I was like, oh, I wonder what my thoughtful followers will, because I wanted, <laughs> the, the, oh, thing that's even, the thing that's so <laughs> insane about the climate we're in now is I didn't even state with certainty an opinion. I actually outsourced my question yeah. uh, because I actually have respect and care for, I, I'm basically saying I, you've, I'm giving you a voice <laughs> and I want to listen to you. And they're like, go, go kill him. <laughs> I mean, that that's where we are in America right now. Someone can't yeah. even be curious anymore <laughs> yeah. about things that you're not even allowed to be curious about. But, but sorry, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you really yeah, quick. I, I just want to I want to point one thing out. And I don't know, like, maybe I can I don't have the thread in front of me right now. Right. But it's like, I bet if you I went. If, <laughs> oh, did you really? So I bet if you if you went into the stats on that thread, like looked at the analytics you know, you probably, I don't know, let's say you, let's say 20,000 people saw it. Mm. And then you had, I don't know, let's say you had 200 comments. And of those mm. 200 comments, you know, 40 were of the like, how dare you kill him type, right? And it's, and so we end up in like social media, we are constantly in this like tail wagging the dog situation of there's a silent majority who thinks you're reasonable but they have better things to do so they don't comment, oh, you know, point. and, and, point. and it's people who are super angry and psychophantic and zealot, like obsessed, you know, fanatical who do stop whatever they're doing. And they're like, I got to tell this guy, Scott Kaufman, that he's a horrible human being because I'm like protecting my tribe and all this stuff. That's a great point, Mark, because he got 4,000 likes. Yeah, and, there you go. And, and it got like almost a thousand reshares. So, so there you go. You're right. You're right. And in terms of the point I was trying to make, again, I don't, I don't really know the answer, which is why I really wanted to outsource it, but it just dawned on me. I'm like, because I watch a lot of, you know, CNN and then I flip to Fox News. I'm obsessed with the contrast between the two and the issues they're upset. As a psychologist, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's a fascinating that they come, but I never have heard Don Lemon say, we now have a critical race theorist on our show, and the, the, the theory is a little controversial within academia. Some factions of academia have uh, written some pa published papers that have said maybe this is not rock-solid science, and others haven't, so I just wanted to make that clear before the discussion happened. You know, I've never once, yeah, I've never yeah. once, once heard any admission that an idea could be controversial from the coming from their own side. But, True. Uh, but automatically, everything coming from the right is controversial. You know, we it, have we have this controversial guest now on. They never say this guest is controversial. That was my only point. And I think isn't yeah. it a reasonable point? <laughs> I do, I do. And it's it's interesting because I do think, you know, the far right and the far left, like they're not mirror image. They inhabit different spaces, they're different demographics of people, you know, far left people tend to be very educated, they tend to be younger, middle aged, 
far right people tend to be older. They tend to be less educated. You know, left people tend to be on the coast. Right people tend to be in the middle of the country. And I also just think influence their, you know, their influence is different as well. Like it's the far left has a very strong influence in academia and media. And those two things are usually upstream of most cultural ideas. Whereas the right, far right is very influential, say in religion, churches, small communities, rural communities, things like that, which is not upstream of culture and ideas. It's, it's actually upstream of politics because the American system is favored towards more rural communities. So, so you get this like, this weird dynamic where it's, you know, each side is kind of flexing in different places. And I guess controversy is technically it's a, it's ideas that are taboo, right? Like it's, and so if the left dominates the, the space of idea creation, then that would make sense. But th- that's just me spitballing. I'm sure I'm going to get hate mail after, after this. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I'm sure I will too. I, I don't really understand why, um, it's taboo to criticize your in group. That, to me, that, that signals insecurity. That signals like such deep insecurity that you can't even bear the thought that an idea is not perfect, you know, yeah. within your own side. I mean, it's just, I feel like it'd be unfathomable for, for CNN to, they 24 seven, all they do is talk about how much Trump sucks and how much, you know, can Still? you believe that's all, if you, every time you turn on January 6th, it's like, oh my God, can oh you believe God. how much of an asshole this guy is? But I never hear like a criticism of some, of anything, anything from their own side. And then the same thing on Fox News. I mean, look, they're not, they're not safe. No, here. of course. You know, like I, do you ever hear Tucker Carlson ever be like, I don't know if I agree with what some people on the right are saying right now about X. Like yeah. I never hear that. And I don't understand like why that's the case. I am so critical of myself. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I don't consider myself part of my in group. Yeah, right. En- enough, <laughs> enough that I don't criticize myself. Yeah. I mean, do you know? What I, mean? I don't get it. It's just not the way I think. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this, because I've noticed that you've been, you know, you've been more, at least on Twitter. I don't know about on this podcast, but you've been, you've been, you know, investigating these subjects more, a little bit more. And you said that now you're watching, you're watching cable news to kind of observe and understand. What's your relationship to this, th- these inquiries, like this subject matter? Like, is it, are you excited by it? Does it feel like something, does it make you miserable, but you feel like as a good citizen and a good psychologist, you need to do it? It, it sounds like that's what it is. No, oh, no, 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 no. I was just saying, is that where you're going with that question? No, yeah, um, yeah. but it's a great question. And I don't feel authentic talking about these topics. I don't feel like it's me. I don't, mm-hmm. it's not the core of what I'm here on this earth to do. Um, I would love to spend as much time as humanly possible talking about how we can coach people to greatness, how we can um, help kids who are falling between the cracks in the education system. When I talk about a whole slew of other topics, I get lit up and inspired and feel like I'm a valuable human being. But every time I, I talk about politics, I feel the exact opposite. Yeah, <laughs> I me feel too. horrible, feel depressed. I feel like no hope. <laughs> and I hate yeah. it. And yet, so then, then therefore, uh, the obvious question, why, why do you do it? Now, I don't in this podcast, but these conversations are on my mind because I'm an intellectual, I'm a nerd, and I have questions. 
<laughs> well, that's and, the and, problem is I have questions. And and the way the world is, I mean, I think these are topics that any intelligent person is worried about right now. Like I don't I know in my friend groups it comes up all the time, you know, and and even people who aren't podcasters or writers or psychologists like it's, you know, just family members, people on the right and the left. Like everybody seem everybody it's like we have this black hole in our culture right now. And, you know, I felt myself getting sucked into it a couple of years ago. And I, I made a very conscious decision last year to just get back out and stay out. Good. And because I found the same thing, like it just was, it was making me miserable. It was really like, it made me loathe turning on my computer in the morning, which, you know, that, that's no good. Maybe that's where I need to get to. That that's a one potential route is where I make a commitment to staying out. I mean, we have mutual friends. You know, I'm not going to mention names, but they they feel this. They're public figures. You know, they mm-hmm. they feel the same way. I've talked to them personally about this as well, and they they're like, I'm just not going to even touch any of those issues. I think part of the problem of being a ravenously curious person such as myself is that it's almost like a dopamine thing. If I if I can't get you know, like, who can I talk this? So maybe I just talk to you privately. Maybe we just get a beer and talk about these topics. Maybe I don't need to talk about them in public, you know, but I yeah. need to talk about them. I want, I'm craving to talk to someone about them because I think there's so much bad that's going on right now and I want to understand it. Does For that sure. Make sense? Yeah. For sure. And yeah, I, I limit it to my private life, but a lot of that is kind of just, it's just calculated because it's like, I recognize that like I'm of most value, you know, my brain and career is most valued to society if I'm, talking about more universal subjects like you know a lot of the subject you know the subjects you talk about on this podcast and and it's and so as much as i might be you know freaking out or troubled or curious about a lot of these topics i've just found like the cost benefit of bringing you know engaging online on the internet is just it's not there like it's it's really not i might get there I might get there soon, <laughs> real soon. <laughs> <laughs> so let's transition for a second to the, to the self-help industry, a discussion mm-hmm. of the self-help industry and where you are, unique value. And I'd love to know more about your unique value um, uh, from your own perspective. I noticed something you wrote in, uh, not that you wrote, but there was a profile of you in, in The New Yorker. big response to why you do what you did was your uh, um, a reaction to Tiny Buddha. I was wondering why you were hating on Tiny Buddha. Because... <laughs> I love Tiny Buddha. He's not even the full uh, Buddha. He's only a uh, Tiny Buddha. He's uh, a vulnerable, vulnerable Tiny Buddha. And I love Tiny Buddha. I, and I share those things. And I was just, I was wondering, uh, so that's one thing I wanted to discuss with you is why, why, why? Okay. Okay. Well, so first of all, public apology to Tiny Buddha. Nothing against Tiny Buddha. It's fine. I'm a very competitive person. And if you've ever seen like the last, like the documentary about Michael Jordan or whatever. Like Michael Jordan has it, like he was so competitive that he would like invent enemies in his own mind oh, yeah. to motivate himself. Oh, yeah. You know, and I, I think early in my career, I had a little bit of that. I was in my twenties. I was writing online. No, like nobody had ever heard of me. And I didn't like the self-help industry. I, I thought it was a little bit too cheesy, powder puffy. You know, it needs to be a little bit more real and more raw. And so there were a number of very popular sites at the time that I would kind of look at and I'd be like, fuck that guy. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to beat them. You know, like kind of like Michael Jordan getting worked up before a game. That makes sense. 
It's not, it's not personal. But anyway, so when I was talking to the journalist, he was like, so like what sites? And I was like, ah, oh, well, there's a site, Tiny Buddha, like posted a million, like little, you know, love yourself today because you're special, you know, type things. Yeah. And, uh, and I wanted to be the antithesis to that. And so it was just kind of a tool of motivation. It's nothing against tiny buddha so if tiny if the per i don't even know who runs tiny buddha but if they're listening he's then... a lovely guy he's a lovely guy i just opened up their page and i just i thought this would be fun let me read the last three quotes and you tell me what your reaction to them are okay, <laughs> okay. never be ashamed again this is all improv i didn't plan any of this yep. um yep. never never be ashamed to say i'm worn out i've had it oh boy already i'm like rolling my eyes um <laughs> Never be ashamed to say, quote, I'm worn out. I've had enough. I need some time for myself, end quote. That isn't being selfish. That isn't being weak. That's being human. Uh, Topher uh, Kirby said that. What's your immediate gut reaction to that? I mean, yeah. I, I don't, like, I don't know. I so, so that's a good example. There are a lot of, like, quotes in the self-help world that just strike me as so obvious that they're not really and i understand there's some people out there that it's not obvious but like it's so plain that i wonder why it needs to be said well it's um, not edgy i mean i think you like edgy i do like edgy yeah i really let's be do. honest let's get to the core of this sir <laughs> from a psychoanalytic perspective i think that like if something's too milk toast i think you kind of yes like uh, no no i can do better yeah, yeah. That's absolutely part of it. I also think so. Uh, you I have know, that same bone you do, by the way. I, I get it. Like I get it. I'm saying that from a person who gets it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's. I also think that you know a lot of traditional self help, like that quote. You know, a lot of it. I think a lot of the industry kind of originated from. And I'm sorry that I'm about the stereotype, but I think just understanding the demographics of the self-help industry, I, I believe this is true. I think a lot of the industry kind of spawned from a lot of housewives in the 70s, 80s, and 90s who were very codependent and very bored and probably felt exhausted and burnt out all the time. And so I feel like a lot of the traditional quotes are like very like laser directed at that. So like... That person, that audience, I think that quote makes total sense for, and it's probably a very powerful quote for a person like that to hear. It's just that, you know, these days, especially like the last 15, 10, 15 years, everybody reads self-help. Like self-help is everybody now. It's young people, it's old people, it's single people, married people, parents, people without kids, you know, super ambitious people, people who just want to like hang out at the beach. Like everybody is reading self-help. And so... There, to me, it, it feels like that quote no longer casts a, a wide, super wide net. There's now a large audience of people who are looking for good advice and information who will see that quote and just be like, well, yeah, duh. Like, dude, take a day off. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> you know, I actually, I read an interesting study once that I think is a very underrated study. It found that people who are most insecure and low self-esteem just gravitate towards self-help quotes more than others now this I and mean, again that in itself is probably a no duh sort mm -hmm. of thing but isn't so much of these kind of stuff just it's just stuff to make people feel better like for instance i'm going to read another one to you yep and the dandelion does not stop growing because it is told it is a weed 
The dandelion does not care what others see. It says, one day, they'll be making wishes upon me. <laughs> the Atkinson. Now, isn't that, isn't that just a motivator? It's like a, it's like a, it's, let's say you're insecure and you feel like you're a schlub. You know, you're eating pizza there on the couch and you, you know, you just don't, you know, you're lazy. You read that. Is that, is that even going to motivate you though? Like, is it going to work? Uh, okay, so no I... No offense to schlubs. No offense, yeah. <laughs> no offense to dandelions either. Yeah. Um, or, or pizzas. Yeah. <laughs> or, or couches. Yeah, or anyway. couches, yeah. yeah anyway, yeah. yeah. So, so this kind of like falls into a little bit of a theory I have about the self-help industry in general. Is that like... Okay, so at the core of that statement, right? Like basically what that quote is saying is is like, look, haters going to hate, you know, like, and just keep working on yourself and yeah. you know it's like if you're going to do if you're going to become an admirable person there's always going to be people who are going to try to tear you down like that's just a truism about life i think it's mm -hmm. something that we all need to hear mm -hmm. occasionally and i think that's essentially what this quote is accomplishing my complaint with stuff like that it's more about the packaging and my belief about the self-help industry in general is that there's nothing new in self-help like 99% of what's in self-help is been around in philosophy and religion for thousands of years. The thing that changes and the thing that people, the reason why there's so much demand for it is that the packaging changes. So from generation to generation and demographic to demographic, you get the same message, but with different stories, different language, different packaging around it, because that reaches people differently. And sometimes if you change the packaging around an idea, it lands a little bit more powerfully. Like it, it, incites a little bit more emotional reaction in people, which is important if you're trying to change your behavior. So I think a quote like that, you know, when I hear it, it's like, okay, the idea is fine. It's, it's something that we all need to hear. My, the whole thing with the dandelion or whatever, you know, my question is, who is, who is that pack? Like, why is it packaged that way? And who is that landing for? And it's just, that's, it's not my style. It's not what lands for me. You know, it gets a little bit of an eye roll out of me, but that's fine. Like there's a lot of people that it does land for. And as long as it lands for them, that's totally fine. Yeah. And a lot of what I do in my work is just, it's repackaging for a different audience, a different demographic of people. And you've really done a tremendous job. I mean, kudos, like the audience you've built and, and you really know your audience and you really, you really give them what they want. You give the people what they want. Um, <laughs> that is great. I was reading an article you wrote, uh, four ways I've changed my mind in the past 10 years. And you wrote that when you turned 30. How old are you right now, by the way? I'm 38. Okay. So this was almost 10 years ago that you wrote. Oh God, where did I write this? 10 years before that, which makes <laughs> me think now, have you written another 10 years one? But not yet. Uh, have you, when, well, when you turn 40, maybe you'll, you'll write, you'll write about the prior days. But you, I believe you, do you, do you not know what article I'm talking about? Dude, I've written so many things over the years. I, I do not remember this one. Yeah. One of them is okay. that I have a lot more respect for genetics than I used to. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting because no one uses the G word in the self-help world. It's controversial. Um, it's controversial. <laughs> Everyone acts as though, well, look, it's all in your mind. You know, just change your thinking the way you think about it. Uh, and you'll attract mm. it into your life. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Uh, I don't know. It's like, what if you said, well, actually, personality traits are heritable to a very large degree. It doesn't mean they're unchangeable, but it means that it, uh, for some people, there are individual differences. For some people, it's going to be harder. It's going to be mm -hmm. a greater uphill battle. 
I mean, that's the truth. I mean, it's, yeah, that nuance sure. is the truth, but you never see the nuance in those in those kinds of quotes. So I, I was wondering what you're thinking of that was when you wrote that and where you are now eight years after you wrote that. I would say, you know, I've developed a, a tremendous amount of respect for genetics and its role and outcomes of well-being. And I honestly think, you know, I... I I don't know how to start this, you know. So, so I, I mentioned earlier, you know, my my role is really I just how see do myself... I say this without being canceled? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how do I say? <laughs> yeah, oh, that that ship has sailed. No, I mean, so I, you know, I see myself as a repackager, and you know, one of that is one one of the, the ways that's repackaged is you know taking ideas from I don't know Stoicism or Zen Buddhism and repackaging them for people nowadays. But another way I see myself is taking ideas from academia and kind of simplifying them, translating them for the lay person, you know, taking those conclusions. And so a lot of my work over the last 10 or 12 years has just been reading a lot of research and under trying to understand data and understand like where the field is. And if you're going to, anybody who's going to seriously dive into psychology or pretty much any science, like you can't, the power of genetics is, is just like so clear and all the data and all the evidence that you can't ignore it. And on the flip side too, you know, once I was in this industry for enough years, you know, so when I started out in this industry, I also kind of had a naive view. I was like, you know, the, you could be whoever you want to be and, you know, sign up for my coaching. We'll, we'll get you there together and all this stuff. And, you know, once I got five or six years into it and, kept in touch with a lot of people over that period, like you, you just start to realize that, yeah, like it's like, there are certain things it's like, you know, if you're five foot seven and you want to be in the NBA, like, dude, you can practice basketball all you want. Right. It's probably not going to happen. Right. And there are certain things with, you know, personality traits and just the way your brain works. And I think I've really evolved to a place now where my understanding of like what, what self-help actually is, or like what, what a good life actually is, is it's not like becoming whoever you want to be. Like there's always going to be things that you want to be that you're not going to, yeah, you're never going to fully get there. Right. To me, being a very like mentally, emotionally healthy person is having a very strong understanding of who you are in terms of personality disposition as you would put it neurodiversity you know learning apt different aptitudes different styles different talents and capabilities and then adapting well to those aspects of yourself like developing learning skills and finding tools to help you like move well through the world with an understanding of you know, the machinery you've got up, you know, in your head. And that's not like an easily, it doesn't, that doesn't market super well. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, you can't really build an infomercial out of like, you know, you know, Hey, probably 55% of your personality is set in stone. So let's just get, let's just try to deal with what you've got. <laughs> like that doesn't, that doesn't like move super expensive audio <laughs> courses, like, like hotcakes. Um, but I, I do think it's the truth, and I think it's an important truth, and it's something I do try to expose people to. Uh, you and I are very, very much on the same page. I don't think you invented it, but I've heard about it through you, this term of neurodiversity. Mm. Um, I love it because it's it's so important 
I think not only for our self-acceptance to, you know, kind of accept the ways that our brains are different, but also like empathize with others. That's like the real diversity, right? Like it's like, I agree. All of our brains are different and, and let's honor and respect and enjoy those differences. Uh, and learn from each other. Now, I wouldn't say the real diversity because I do think that like skin color is an important form of diversity yes. and yes. other things. But before people misunderstand, but I do make the point that diversity is more than skin deep. And that For sure. is a point, and that is a point I really try to make to people. I, um, gave a commencement address recently. And I guess I'm bragging a little bit. Um, hey, to, uh, look at you. Bridges Academy, <laughs> which is a special school for kids who are twice exceptional. So they're very gifted, but they also have a major area of learning stability. And they're definitely oh, divergent. Most of them are on the autism spectrum. And I made that point and I got a lot of cheers because I do think a lot often they're left out of the, the, the conversation of diversity. Yep. So I think we're on the same page with that for sure. So I've got a little bullet here that I wrote down. I've got a little pet theory that I've written about before. Go on. Which I want to get your reaction. And then I also want to ask you specifically, you know, about yourself a little bit. So I've got this theory that the the best part about somebody is, well, so the headline is the best part of about somebody is also the worst part about them. What I actually mean by that is that generally the aspect of ourselves that is our greatest strength or like gives us the most benefits in our life is often also the same thing that is partially responsible for most of the problems in our life. Like it's, we all tend seem to have these traits that are double-edged swords and it's often the play, the area of our lives that we're very strong in there's that strength causes a weakness in another part of our life. And so I want to ask you, a, do you think that's true? And B, if so, what would you say that is about you? What is what is the best and worst thing about you? It's a great question. The way I'll frame it is there's a real academic debate, as I put forward in my book, Twice Exceptional, about um, whether or not everything that's neurodivergent about a person has a hidden amazing benefit automatically, you mm-hmm. know, or twice exceptional people are those who tend to have some significant challenges that are challenges. But they also have that person tends to have a gift, you know, um, or their amazing talent and is creative and it's necessarily stemming from their disability. So there's different camps about this. Um, hmm. And I think this relates to the question you asked. I actually don't think that everything has a secret gift <laughs> to it. I think the field of neurodiversity goes too bonkers on that sometimes saying hmm. everything like it's like a taboo to, to say, you know what? This sucks. <laughs> I can't, I have ADHD. I can't concentrate. We're shit. And you know what? I don't like that. Yeah. It's like taboo. You have to, you have to say, but it, you're creative, but you're, it's like almost like a, a knee jerk sort of like compulsive thing to like, God forbid you face that someone could not be perfect. Yeah. Whereas I, as you, I think we both share this thing is telling people, you know what? It's okay to not be perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect either. There's a real reality there. I don't think me and you like bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't like yeah. bullshit. So I, I really think that there are a lot of things that do have a hidden benefit. And I think that's true, but I don't think everything has a sure. hidden benefit. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, what would you, can you give me an example of, of something that would not have a hidden benefit? Right. Because maybe someone could do an intellectual exercise and, and for everything they can come up with some way, some context in which that could be beneficial. That's true. And well, and I, and, and I also think a lot of this is contextual based on the person, right? Like it's, so That's for instance, like, say. 
That's what yeah. I'm so like I'm I'm I was diagnosed with ADHD. I was a very very mediocre student. But oh my God, Me t- I, I I have ADHD I, too. I wonder if this is does this could this explain some of our own sort of cheekiness? <laughs> it could be. yeah. Well, I was just about to say like maybe I that's think, our hidden benefit. <laughs> I think well I I think the hidden benefit of my ADHD is that I get bored with mm. topics and ideas very very quickly. And so you, you spoke earlier of like, I like edginess. Well, I think part of me is like, I look for that edginess because it keeps me engaged with keeps stuff. The dopamine. Yeah, and I, and I think, I think a lot of what people like about my writing is that edginess of like, I can take, I can take a, a topic that is a little bit academic and stale and make it edgy and put a crazy story on it and keep people, you know, hooked on it for a while. Absolutely. So that is the point I wanted to make is it's very personal. I, what I'm saying is who are we to tell someone if they really find something that sucks is in their experience? Hmm. Who are we to come in and play saviors and say, oh, well, actually, it's wonderful. I, I guess that's the, only, <laughs> that's the only point I want to make. I agree with that. I, I would say that this is the sort of thing that you can really is it's only valid if if the person identifies it in themselves. You know, like I would, I, I would not want somebody coming to me, you know, 18 year old me and being like, well, your ADHD is actually a great thing. And I'd, I'd be like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> but you know, it, it's like, it took years for me to discover the great thing from that. So my question to you is, is have you found that in your own experience yes. with yourself? I, I have in many, many ways as someone who is, has always been quirky to be able to like, be described as quirky as an adult in a positive way feels great it really does feel great like people like oh scott he's he's quirky and i and i think they mean that i think they mean that and like you know and then i'm endearing you know, yeah i'm endearing but i didn't feel that way as a kid at all you know i felt like a freak um yeah. so there are certainly ways for me personally where, where that has been the case and where also just my literalness, which I got made fun of a lot as a kid, has helped me as a scientist. Um, mm. uh, has helped me write a lot of, uh, do research and do papers. I really do and I ha- always have had a, not just an aversion to, but a, I just can't understand it, game playing, fat around something oh, yeah. like politics. Uh, I'm bad. This is why I'm bad at politics. This is, I'll say some, I'll have a question, a genuinely curious question. I'll ask it not knowing and realizing what landmines I'm stepping on with no intention of hurting anyone's feelings. No intention whatsoever <laughs> of causing, uh, fires and chaos in World War III. <laughs> I just had a question. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I could totally relate to that. It's funny. I have that problem. Like I'm not very active in my own social media. Like it's, it's very smart. Yeah, I, it's, there's like a arm's length distance between, so it's, it's not there so much, but I've noticed whenever I have to deal with kind of like more corporate cultures in my career, like if I need to, you know, discuss plans for a, a book contract or something, or like I, I get added to an email thread, like I, well, I just, uh, we just produced a film last year in New Zealand. And so I'll get added to an email thread with a bunch of people at a production company and I'll just like, it's same thing in my head. I'm just asking some questions and it's like all of a sudden there's just fires everywhere that people are putting out because apparently I, I said the wrong thing and I wasn't supposed to say this to this person or this, yes. you know, not with that person on the email thread. And like, oh. I'm just, I have no patience for that stuff. I hate it. I have no patience. I hate it. And I also really think I have a learning disability because I don't get it. Like I don't get 
I, I mean, this is actually a nice transition to your entryway into the pickup artist world. You're part yeah. of the pickup artist world. Now, my experience with the pickup artist world is I wrote a book called Mating Intelligence Unleashed, which I never tell anyone about because <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't know about that book. But um, I, that came out in 2011. I co-authored that with Glenn Gear, who's a wonderful evolutionary psychologist. But when that book, uh, around that time, I was invited once to attend they loved the book in the pickup artist community and they invited me to uh, attend a summit in New York City. And hmm. it was the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. It was like a room full of the, the people who were teaching the course were narcissists and the people in the audience were autistic people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the dynamic. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 I don't know if you resonate with that at all, but it was, it was, they're very well intentioned. They don't understand rules. They didn't, under, they didn't sure. understand the rules of the game. They want to understand. They want rules. They want the, the people in the audience. They have a lot. And then the people who were selling the products to me came across as like hucksters, you know? Obviously, it's not everyone in the community. Who isn't, I don't want to yeah, yeah. uh, be canceled by the pickup artist community. But <laughs> this, was, this was my. That would my, be a feat. That would be a this feat. This was my observation. <laughs> and, and I can honestly say that I really had a lot of empathy for. Uh, mm -hmm. The people in the audience, I, I talked to some of them. They're like, we really don't understand game playing. What Now, what the most ironic thing I noticed from that whole community is, well, then therefore they're being taught how to how to be a game player. Yeah. And that's a transformation from not understanding it at all and not understanding those kinds of social interactions to becoming like this master player. It's just fascinating to me. So I wanted to, does this resonate at all? A hundred percent. Actually, I have... Well, the the posts I wrote are long gone from that era, but I actually wrote you about you this. deleted them. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, shred. No. You're like, they're all shredded. <laughs> shredded. <laughs> uh, but I, I actually wrote about this back then. You know, so I I coached in that industry for a few years, and I what was your handle? Were you uh, it, coincidentally Manson. entropy? Oh, oh wow yeah yeah so okay. you you, you, you yeah um so my observation is that there are there are really two types of guys and i think you nailed one of them is a lot of i'd say about 50 percent of them you know they were probably on the spectrum really socially underdeveloped a lot of guys who were intensely sheltered bullied you know just like had never socialized really and they were confused and Googled online how to socialize or how to talk to a girl. And like they ended up at one of these seminars. And so for those guys, and what was interesting about those guys too, is that they didn't really suffer as much from the anxiety. Like you could take one of those guys into, you know, I don't know, a bookstore or a coffee shop or whatever and be, you know, be like, you know, Hey, that blonde girl, like go introduce yourself to that girl over there and they go do it and they'd have no problem. And then they, you know, within 20 seconds, they'd some, say something super weird and the girl would be like, uh, can you go away? And then they'd go away. And so a lot of them, the work with them was getting them to understand like, okay, so you said this thing that feels weird to her. And this is why it feels weird. And you like explain kind of like the social context and everything. That's that 50%. Valuable. That sounds valuable. It actually, I think for a lot of those guys, it was. If it was just that, it would have been very valuable. Yeah, the problem is, is there. yeah, yeah. It, the problem is that the Nick pickup artist, the, the, yeah, the, the, the next step is call them ugly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and I, I'm just speaking to like how I worked with these guys. You know, there was a lot of baggage and weird beliefs and misogyny and stuff that was mm. went on in that community too. So a lot of those guys 
got that as well. But I'd say the other 50% of guys, and, and I would include myself in this category, is that they were actually pretty well socialized. They had pretty good emotional intelligence. They were just intensely low self-esteem slash codependent. They had, I say codependent because it's like a lot of them were very high functioning in other areas of their life. They had great jobs. They had great groups of friends. They had, you know, went on cool trips and stuff. But you put them in front of an attractive woman and they are just terrified, absolutely terrified. Mark, uh, Relink, can I just pause right there? Sure. For the sake of conversation. My observation is that you have 50% that are on the autism spectrum and you have 50% who are, have vulnerable narcissism and the ones in stage yes. have grandiose narcissism. Hundred percent. That's I, my. I, that's uh, that's that was my exact analysis. Yeah. So, <laughs> and and you you actually beat me to it because I was okay. gonna, I was actually heading in that I study direction. Study vulnerable narcissism. I study it, and yep. I, it's a textbook. It's textbook. hundred yep. percent. Such a fear of rejection. Such yep. a, such a strong fear of rejection that you need to become something else. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So with those guys, it was all about. It was mostly about the anxiety. It was getting them to deal with because, and it was interesting too, because a lot of guys would have, you know, if you, if you kind of see like the, the courtship process is like, you know, from like meeting to first date to, you know, say kissing to actually getting in physically intimate guys would have like this like ball of anxiety on like one spot on that line, you know, so it's like a lot of guys were just terrified of like talking to somebody. Other guys could talk, but it was like as soon as it was time like to kiss her or whatever, like they would just kind of lose their mind. So mm. a lot of those guys, it was more the emotional side. It was getting them to like conquer their fears, deal with anxiety. What actually ended up happening in a lot of cases, though, is, is you nailed it, is it was a lot of the coaching in that industry was grandiose narcissists teaching vulnerable narcissists mm. how to be grandiose narcissists. But they were codependent on each other. Yes, exactly. 100%. And, I, wrote, and, I wrote a tweet about that, about just in general, self-help industry is essentially a codependency between vulnerable narcissists and grandiose narcissists. <laughs> absolutely, dude. Absolutely. And yeah, it's a gross dynamic. And, you know, if there's a, if there's kind of a unifying thread of my career, it is me kind of discovering that gross dynamic in the pickup artist community, creating the content to kind of get out of that. Like I wrote my book, Models Attract Women Through Honesty as like an antidote to that and then coming into the self-help industry and finding that same dynamic happening and being grossed out by it and wanting to, you know, kind of write the antidote for the self-help industry as well. Um, that that's like my, my 12 year career in a nutshell. And you did, you did, you know, well done because what is different about yours. And again, this is, been a long conversation to say was your unique value proposition remember we started off that was the thread that was the thread that started this in my view you don't come across to me as grandiose narcissistic because you're not or at least that dependency that codependency is not evident so obviously at least in the relationship between you and your audience because you're not taking people who are woefully insecure and building them up and puffing them up so much so that they feel so great that they don't have to deal with their insecurities anymore because that's yeah. that's the codependency i'm referring to is uh, being, you know yep. and i don't see that with you which is which i love and as my and i say this with all modesty i'd like to think that's the same kind of relationship i have with my audience i like to give them science-backed information but i also have i tell them to 
embrace their dark, embrace their dark side, explore their dark side, explore their insecurities, explore their fears. It's it's, it's more about exploration than it is yes. me saying you're great. You know, like I, I'm not going to write a book <laughs> called "You Are Great," you know, because I actually don't think that most people are great. <laughs> I mean. It's so well. <laughs> yeah, I think there is a book called "You Are a Badass." Right? Yeah, there is, That's and it is number it is one. Sold. New York Times number one. Yeah. It is sold very, very well. Yeah. Let me ask you, actually. Well, first of all, what what do you think is your unique value proposition? Well, definitely evidence based. Already puts me. <laughs> in the yeah, top yeah. I mean, 1%. you percent. You you have the credentials yeah, in, in yeah, this yeah. world, like the, this world of podcasting and blogging yeah. and stuff. It's yeah, like I saw Elaine, right? Like there's a point like when I started this podcast, like I saw I was like, you know what? There's an empty lane <laughs> yeah. um, where I do want to help people. Like I do have an impulse to help people. And that weird hybrid of being a scientist and being really, really science minded and nerdy to that level of truth seeking. But also I really do want to help people. And then I think there may be an extra dimension, which is maybe like my unique value proposition is also my personality. Like when you add that in and integrate that into those other two things, because I don't take things so seriously. I hope people appreciate my sense of humor. I don't know. What do you think? I, I would say, well, to, to bring it back to your quirkiness, right? Your, yeah. your superpower. I think your quirkiness is kind of, cause ultimately like psychology and the self exploration that happens through understanding psychology, like it's, it's dealing with uncomfortable aspects of yourself and dealing with ideas of judgments and shame and stuff from others. And so I think your, your quirkiness is probably kind of the, the sugar that helps some of the medicine go down. You know, it, 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 if people see you not taking yourself so seriously, it helps them lighten up on themselves to hear some of the things they need to hear. Yeah. And I also, I just found even just with friends, they say that they feel very comfortable with me because I think I don't take myself uh, so seriously, you know, like mm -hmm. I want people to feel comfortable around me, you know, like, yeah. I, I, I think I bring that out of my guests. Um, I guess admit things that they never admit in any other <laughs> podcast, for instance. <laughs> I, I, I had this one guy, he was crying. He was we were talking about his childhood. And then, yeah, like I, I asked for his signature. I met up with him in Santa Monica, I asked for a signature on his book. And he, his inscription was, Thanks for making me cry. Uh, like, you know, like I, I don't know why I said any of those things I said. So uh, maybe, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so can you compare and contrast to me the pickup artist life versus the married life? You're, 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 <laughs> what's the difference? Right, what's the, there's got to be benefits on both sides and disadvantages on both sides. It's not like one's perfect and one's not perfect. For sure. The, and I hate calling it the pickup artist life. Let's call I it, know. let's call it, let's call it the, uh, seduction lifestyle. <laughs> no, <laughs> oh my God. No, you're it. killing that's me. It. No, that's even worse. That's Let, let's call it the bachelor lifestyle. You know, I was a very, I was a big party guy and intentionally dated a lot of women. You know, that Were they life only models. <laughs> Wasn't that title of your book though? Yeah. 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 You know, you're like, I don't even want, you're like, I don't even want to. Come on, dude. Mention uh, the title of my book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was, it was, it was a double entendre of models and, and mental models. But anyway. That's so cool. Wait, are you serious? Was that yeah. part of it? Yeah. That's so cool. Wait, wait actually, I had no idea that it actually had a double entendre for mental models. Yeah. So it's called Models Attract Women Through Honesty. But if you actually read the introduction, it says that the problem that most men have is that they have poor mental models of how dating relationships, women, masculinity. Well, that's actually brilliant. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for me, for All me, right. Man. So the bachelor lifestyle I'd say is more fun and exciting, but it's also, you know, the highs. Well, no, I don't want to say highs are higher. I would say it's, it's more exciting. It's more stimulating. Thrilling. Married thrilling. Yeah. Thrilling. Uh, Adventure seeking. Married life is happier, which I think is contingent on marrying the right person and, you know, the relationship being healthy. But I would say overall, it's, it's, everything's more even keel. You know, days are just consistently good and, and over enough time that starts to add up into something that feels very, very special, you know, and it's, I think five years ago, sometimes I'd get a little bit wistful of my, my party days, you know, and every once in a while, like a, a guy friend of mine would like, you know, be like, dude, we should go to Vegas and like do this and that yeah. and whatever. And uh, I'd be like, oh yeah, maybe I should do that. But it's funny now I'm the last few years, I'm just like really no desire. Cause there's, I hear you. I'm not there yet, <laughs> but I yeah. hear you. I'm still in my party stage, uh, to a very large degree. <laughs> but, um, but I hear you because the contrast between the feeling of thrilling versus the feeling of contentness, they're different feelings. Yeah. Um, the thrilling feeling never feels content. Yep. It doesn't. But then I will also say on the other side, the content feeling very rarely feels fit thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, and so that's tricky. Um, yeah. but look, uh, wouldn't, uh, home slice, uh, home girl, what's her name? Uh, Esther Perel. <laughs> wouldn't she, wouldn't she say, <laughs> this is like probably the most like raw, unscripted <laughs> interview we, I've ever done in a psychology <laughs> podcast. Good, but I love good. it. I actually love it. I actually, good. Really I've enjoyed it too, man. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't Esther Perel say, like, well, you can have it both? Uh, that's right. That's not her accent at all. But <laughs> wouldn't, she say, wouldn't she say that? Like, if she was talking to you, wouldn't she say, well, don't you have thrilling moments with your wife? For sure. But it's different because a lot of the thrills in, in I guess, single bachelor life, it's, it's around novelty. It's around new person, new experiences, kissing a person for the first time, having uh, sex with them for the first time, going out with them for the first time, you know? So there's a lot of novelty stimulation. Whereas I, I would say, so the downside of marriage is that you, after a certain amount of time with somebody, you have to, both of you have to very consciously work on creating novelty to like kind of, yeah, you have to find ways to like keep things novel, whether that's like little romantic getaways or date nights or, you know, putting on sexy lingerie or whatever, you know, whatever people want to do to make things a little bit novel. Um, you have to like find a way to include that. Well, isn't that why people, uh, have open, uh, marriages and I mean, isn't that what, uh, polyamory satisfies some of that as well? So you, you decided to live a monogamous lifestyle. Is that correct? Or is it getting too yeah. much all of a sudden? Yeah. No, no. You're like, I, you're like, you're like for the most part. For yeah, the yeah. most part, yes. <laughs> no, no. It, we are, my wife and I are monogamous. Yeah. I have, I have, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've experimented with non monogamy in previous relationships. You know, non monogamy is, it's a cost benefit thing. And I, I, you know, what I get, my audience asks me about non, you know, polyamory quite a bit. And the answer I always give is, I think it's probably, you know, there, there's like a minority of people that their personality is well suited for it. I think it's people hear it and they get very excited about the idea of like, oh my God, you can have sex with other people and not be jealous or like even include them in your relationship. And like, yeah, that is very exciting. And, and it's 
sexy too. Like, you know, it, like you sit there and fantasize about it and it, it can get pretty exciting. The thing, the thing is we don't like the human mind. We're, we're bad at, we're very bad at considering trade-offs, particularly emotional mm. trade-offs. And so mm. what you don't think about is like all, like the many, many awkward and difficult conversations you will have to have, not just with your partner, but with, you know, whoever else you want to hook up with. There will be feelings of jealousy, inadequacy, shame that will come up that will need to be dealt with. You'll need to have good lines of communication with all your partners about those. And then on, you know, you just throw on top of that. It's like, it's, it is a large emotional load to be a good partner in one relationship. Like now imagine doubling that and adding a second person. You know, there, there's an old joke where I forget who said it, but they're like, yeah, it's like, I, I, I barely have enough energy to handle one, one woman. Like, why would I want to, like, I could barely handle one wife. Why would I want to have four? It's a, it's a real thing. Like there's, there's like a, an emotional exhaustion. So I think some people are well disposed to that sort of thing. They are good at those conversations. They enjoy them. They have a very high sex drive, very high need for novelty in their life. And so if you happen, like if your personality lines up in all those checks all those boxes, then I think it could work for you. But I also think, I feel like today, maybe uh, I think more people, more people are excited about the idea. I think, it, you know, if they experiment with it, it, you quickly, at least from what I've seen of myself and friends and stuff, it's like people get excited, they experiment with it. And then they're like, e yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that again. So it's true. It's it. it and then this, it works for some people. Speaking of polyamory, how's Will Smith doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Come on, dude! Come on! Was, you gotta was, admit that was that good. was that, that was, was good. good. That was that really was good. good. I've been trying to figure out a way of asking how Will Smith is doing. No, dude, um, that that is the best way you could have possibly asked. Like people are gonna think this is scripted. That was so good. It's, everything <laughs> is not scripted. Actually, everything is not scripted in this whole conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is this is stand-up comedian Scott coming out right here. But um, uh, now you wrote uh, he wrote his uh, his autobiography. <laughs> he wrote his that sounds like a funny thing to say. Yeah, he yeah. wrote his autobiography, but you co-wrote it. Um, yes, and uh, you're friends. You guys are friends. So uh, how's your friend doing? I've not talked to him in a while, but I imagine knowing him, I know immediately after the uh, the slap, he was pretty bummed out mm. and and pretty pretty sad about everything remorseful but i haven't talked to him in a couple months knowing him he's will has maybe the highest capacity out of any person i've ever met in my life to take whatever situation he is in and psychologically adapt to it and like mm. turn it into a positive for himself so I haven't spoken to him, but I guarantee you he's somewhere right now living his best life. And he's probably decided that this is, you know, this forced sabbatical from his career is like the best thing that's happening to him right now. He's probably reconnecting with friends and family. He's probably finding all sorts of useful, productive things to do. Cool. I hope that that him and Chris Rock can joke someday in public. I'm sure they will. I'm hoping for that. I I'm recently sure they saw will. a concert. I re recently saw Chris Rock in concert, and I could tell you some of the jokes he made. He well, he walks immediately on stage. I wrote that they stole they not stole her phones, but they kept our phones in a 
things, so I couldn't write it down, but I committed it all to memory. Mm. Um, and he said he walks on stage and he goes, don't worry, I'm okay, I'm okay, finally got my hearing back. <laughs> <That's> what, <laughs> <laughs> that, and then later, later in the show, he goes, everyone is doing performative outrage these days. Those words hurt, those words hurt. Anyone who tells you that has never been slapped in the face. <laughs> so that was another joke he said. And yeah. then uh, he had another one, a third one, which I'm blanking on. He called him like Sugar uh, Smith. Uh, Shug, Shug Smith <laughs> is what they called him later on. He said he asked something about it. He's like, I'm no victim of Shug Smith or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, look, he's laughing about it. I, I, What would warm my heart is just to, to watch them both someday come together and kind of you know, joke, uh, you know, at a human, have a human connection. I think they will. Uh, I mean, Will is honestly, he, he's a really good guy. I, it was, it was a t- terrible thing that he did. It was a moment of weakness, I think, uh, like a significant vulnerability slash insecurity, but like deep down, he's a great guy. He is, and he's great at doing the right thing when it needs to be done. And so I, he's, I, I, I would be shocked if he doesn't find a way to like bury the hatchet and laugh about it with Chris at some point. So it sounds like it was a great experience writing that book with him and getting to know him. I love the dude. I, you know, it's really unfortunate that, you know, wh- what happens, but it, it's, I have nothing but great things to say about him. It was honestly one of the best professional experiences of my life. He was wonderful to work with, really sweet and nice. His team is great. Yeah, it's just a fascinating life. Really enjoyed, like, I had full access to his family, his childhood friends, everybody he's worked with. Like, you know, it's... What an incredible privilege. It it was honestly, like, I basically just got to... It's like, here, here's full access to one of the most successful human beings in the world and everything that makes him tick. And guess what? You can write whatever you want about him, you know? Mm. It was such a joy. And I have only glowing things to say about him. Beautiful. Mark, I was wondering, do you think we have free will? <laughs> oh, by the way, it's like, do you do you want to have the fish or the, the chicken tacos? Oh, by the way, do you have free will? I'm keeping this going. I'm keeping this going. <laughs> Just so you let me know when you have to go. Oh, God. I've had I, to pee emergency level for the last hour, but I'm keeping this going. <laughs> I am what... I believe is called a soft determinist. We probably do not have free will, but I also Mm. believe that it doesn't really matter because we Mm. perceive ourselves and others as having free will. So, and ultimately like that, that's what matters for our socialization, psychological well-being, things like that. So we might as well just act as though we do, even though we probably don't. What about the implications though for uh, the law? And for the way that we, uh, you know, punishment, we, we hand out punishment. I, I think that's a fallacy. You know, in our inside our own heads, we are all experiencing our lives as though we have free will. And I don't think, you know, it's like if, let's say, somebody goes into a rage and kills somebody else, you know, the arguing that he didn't have free will, like, that's not a valid argument. He still mm-hmm. killed somebody, you know, and we still have the moral question of, like, what do you do with a murderer and of functioning society well you probably put them somewhere to keep everybody safe doesn't matter if you have free will or not like that's just how it you know to me it's just too it's like unnecessarily crossing philosophical questions between two domains there was a really fascinating uh conversation recently that was published between daniel dennett on the one side and i believe his name is greg caruso a philosopher on the other side where they really got into this there are a lot of 
complexities and, uh, and nuances to this, of course, as there is in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the question is that we should let someone off the hook. You know, it's not like someone kills everyone. They're like, I didn't, I, I heard Sam Harris says we don't have free will. So, um, <laughs> it's, it's, so, uh, you know, it's all good, folks. It's all good. Nothing to see here. Um, I don't think either of them are arguing that's the case, but there are some interesting implications on how you think about this for how you punish. Mm. You know, so I think Greg has more of a theory of um, retribution, which is more of of getting them back out into society um, and teaching them the errors of their ways and being kinder. I think um, in how we how we treat criminals, and so there might there might be some some different uh, nuances here. But I still don't see. I mean, this is what makes me a soft determinist. I don't see how that conversation has anything to do with free will. I mean, it's like okay. I think ultimately what you do with criminals or say violent offenders, you know, you want to find the most effective and humane way to deal with the offenders and to protect the people in society. And to me, it's like whether there's philosophical free will or not, like that doesn't really come into it. Like to me, this is just a, it's a sociological question more than anything. Oh, that's so interesting. The question of what we have free will is a sociological question. I never hear sociologists debating whether or not we have free will, (laughs) which is interesting because they could. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying no. What what to do with violent offenders is more of a social. Uh, Like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. It's like how how. I'm betting that the philosophical philosophy of mind question is no, 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 sociological. No, 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 no. It's it's yeah. How what how what do we do with our criminals? I think is more of a sociological. It's not a philosophical question. I got you. That's a great great point. Well, I've sort of exhausted my burning <laughs> questions. Now, you said you made a little bit of a list. Yeah. So what have I left out? Uh, that, uh, do you have any burning questions for SPK? Well, why, why don't we do this? Actually, I do have a burning. I have a couple things here, but we can. Oh, great. Let's finish up with this because okay. this is I, I'd like to do a little bit of like a, a machine gun overrated, underrated question with you. And so I'm just going to throw some things at you and I want you to say overrated, underrated, and then just explain why. Ready? <laughs> yes, go. <laughs> okay. Uh, first one, meditation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm going to say overrated. Okay. I'm say overrated even though I Bold. personally love, I personally love meditation, mm-hmm. but it, it's such a personal thing. And it, it, it has become this sort of thing where like you, you're shamed if you don't like meditation. Like if meditation doesn't, is not for you, it's mm-hmm. like, you ain't doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I don't really like that sort of spirit about it. That's, it's antithetical to the whole spirit of what meditation should be. And, and there are a lot of people in the space that the meditation space who do uh, in a non-spiritually narcissistic way, but there are a lot mm. who do, do do it in a spiritually narcissistic way. Very good point. Very good point. I will just comment really quick that I think what I'm enjoying right now, you know, meditation was kind of like a, the, this, the star, the darling child, I think of, you know, became very fashionable 10 or 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And there was a lot of initial research into it that had like stellar results for people and had all these claims about how it improved well-being. And what I find really fascinating now is that there's a lot of research coming out saying the opposite. And it's, it's like, I'm just enjoying watching the subject. I mean, I personally enjoy meditating, but I don't really have a horse in this race a whole lot anymore. I think it's just a tool 
another tool that people can use if it if it's good for them great if it's not that's fine but it's been interesting watching from afar how it's kind of gone from this like almost pan panacea to now all this new research coming out showing that like it actually in some cases not only does it not make people better off but some people a minority of people might even make them worse off. And, um, and, it, and there is research showing that it makes assholes often more assholey, more mm-hmm. assholery. Yep. Word is there. Yep. Yeah, they're more mindful of their assholery now, though. Yep. <laughs> they're more mindful. <laughs> Thank you. I was waiting. I was waiting for. I was waiting for the laugh. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, next, overrated, underrated. Uh, twin studies. Overrated. Interesting. Um, oh, oh, what a! Fa- I mean, you're asking someone who studied all the complexities around it to come up with a binary answer to this question. <laughs> of um, course, uh, we're gonna tweet this out later, so make it good. <laughs> um, well, look, I, I guess I'm gonna say overrated, but in certain circles, underrated in other circles. Okay. Underrated within sociology. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the G word is a dirty word in sociology. Yeah, uh, the G being genes, but within other areas, I think overrated, and I think within behavioral genetics, the field it's overrated. Interesting. You know, I had a bit of a tête-à-tête uh, with. Does tête-à-tête mean like disagreement? I don't know. We can Google it. <laughs> <laughs> Look at us. It, it just sounds good. It sounds good. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you've got it's a PhD. Just, I've I've written a bunch of bestsellers. Just go for it. Sometimes we we, we don't it. even know what these words yeah. mean. We're just it's making a, it up. It's an S-shaped sofa on which two people can sit face to face. Involving? Oh no, no. Involving or happening or happening between two people in private. So okay, it wasn't a tête-à-tête because this was public podcast. Okay. I had a bit of a confrontation. I, with uh with Pullman, the uh, leading one of the leading world's leading behavioral geneticists, nothing against him as a person, mm-hmm. um, but I do think he um overrated uh he overrated he, he in his book on genes he he downplayed the the role of the environment mm. I think and it just went too much in one direction and and relying too much on twin studies to make your point I think is also can be problematic even though I hate that word. It can make you uh, blind to the ways in which our immediate environment can influence our immediate behaviors, even if in the long term it doesn't sculpt us yeah. as much as much as we, we'd like to think it does. Yeah. Interesting. It's funny. Twin studies were kind of the thing that kicked me out of my, I guess, naive beliefs you know, that you can be whatever you want to be. You know, it was, it was, it was discovering the twin study research that, that about 10 years ago that kind of like woke me up to that. But it's funny because as years have gone on, I have gone back and looked at some of that research and yeah, it's actually, it's very limited. Like I don't, it's probably not telling as much as a lot of people say it is telling us. Depends on the context, right? Yeah, for sure. It definitely is underrated in certain contexts. That's true. For sure. For sure. Uh, self-esteem as a concept, as a con, like a constructed concept. Underrated. Interesting. Very much underrated because there's a backlash against the self-esteem movement in the seventies. But I think that was really a backlash against a narcissism movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with that. don't make this distinction between narcissism and self-esteem. I've tried going to great pains to make that distinction because all self, high self-esteem means is that you feel like you're good enough. You don't mm-hmm. feel like you're greater than others, but you have a basic sense of self-worth and a basic sense of competency that you can reach your goals in life. 
And I think those two things are wholly underrated as uh, important things to instill in children. How often do we, do we focus as much time on teaching kids math skills as we do in building up their basic sense of self-worth, for mm-hmm. instance, especially around a tumultuous time in you know, adolescence when they tend to feel very low self-worth and it causes them to act out in all sorts of ways like become a computer hacker, right? Mm. <laughs> but, um, but narcissism is a real problem. But I think they're different yeah. things. I, I agree with that. I've bought into the backlash a little bit. Don't you think it's a little bit of a misnomer, like self-esteem? Like, cause you know, there are a lot of people coming out with like self-compassion, self-acceptance, self-worth, self-value. Like it's, yeah, I think there's a lot of like the debate around this is actually just semantics. Yeah, it's a great point. What part of the word uh, esteem is triggering you? Because to me, the S part or the T E E N part. It's the, it's the second E, to be honest. Yeah, is it like, um, just like really don't like it. What part? <laughs> no, I'm on I fire today, folks. Yeah, I'm on yeah, fire. Yeah. To me, esteem. You know those original studies, and I think it was Baumeister who did them. Who like that found that like violent criminals and narcissists like exhibited very high self esteem. You know, to me, it kind of when I think of esteem, I think of just simply like. Does a person like themselves? Do they have positive feelings? Self-regard, essentially just positive self-regard. And I think positive mm-hmm. self-regard is very different from like believing that you're a good person or believing that you are like morally good, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, and, and believing that you're capable or, um, that's self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. Positive self-evaluation and defending that at all times is narcissism. Yeah. Mm. It's the defending that at all times that it makes it the narcissism. Um, people who tend to be grand, score high in grandiose narcissism must, like they're defending a fort, yeah. must, defend, must defend a positive image of themselves. They can't handle criticism, even the slightest criticism, then they become a victim. Yep, right? Yeah. for sure. Yeah. So you're on something. Yeah. yeah, okay, last one. Overrated, underrated, oh, social media. Totally overrated. Um, hmm. And it may depend on the platform. Because here's the thing. I find Instagram perfectly cordial. Um, mm-hmm. I can uh, post something very innocuous like love, lo- lo- much love to everyone on Twitter. And I'll get, go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> you suck. Love is yeah. overrated. I go on Instagram and I'll write that hands clapped emoticon. Love, love, love hearts. I love you, Scott. It's, it's fascinating the, the difference between those two platforms. I agree with that. Um, so I think there's nuance there in that some are more uplifting and supportive than other platforms. But I think, I think Twitter is, is really overrated. I'm not convinced that there is, there is that much productive conversations going on there. I'm not convinced that the kind of conversations that, that happen on Twitter are moving the needle in our society in a positive direction. In fact, I would, if I had to like intuitively guess, I would say it's moving society in a negative direction. Yeah. I would agree with all that. I find the same thing. Platforms are different. I'm very skeptical that any useful discourse happens on social media. I'm going to add to that. You know, I've last year I wrote a little bit about this and it, it was met with crickets, but you know, it's the research into the negative effects of social media is pretty weak. Like it's not the studies showing that bad things happen. You know, social media causes bad things to happen in people is like, pretty weak data sets and then the the studies with strong data sets show that nothing bad happens and i think people have forgotten the excitement and the beauty of 
connecting to everybody that you've ever known in your life. Like it's, you know, it's just, I just remember when Facebook came out in 2005, like just how unbelievably yeah. awesome it was to like go back and just like see, you know, your friend in high school, what they're doing now and seeing your roommate in college and what they're doing now. And I think we, that's become such a normal part of our life that we take it for granted and forget how amazing that is. So I, I'm with you. I think that the hate is overrated. And I think a lot of it is just people, I think we as people need to like adjust and learn how to use these platforms better. I agree. I agree. Let's end on this note, um, if you agree with me. Hate is uh, overrated. Uh, love is underrated these days. Oh, for do, sure. Do, do you agree with that? For yeah. sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah, the value of love. Yeah, the yeah. empathizing, listening. Yeah. For sure. Awesome. Uh, it would have been awkward if you disagreed with that. <laughs> no, Scott, I'm all hate all the time. <laughs> that would have been really awkward, really freaking awkward. Um, thank you so much, Mark. This was so much fun. Thanks for, for, for just, just going with it. Um, I really appreciate you, man. Yeah, dude. I had a blast. I had a blast. It was great. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.